Lecture six: What babies know. So far, we have suggested that we learn for the sake of learning, and as we pursue other goals, and that we learn by connecting new experiences to the old hat, to what we know already in the form of categories, scripts, and other schemata. But if there's no tabula rasa, what about very young infants? Aren't newborns really learning on a blank slate? In this lecture, we'll consider what babies come prepackaged with. The prepackaging that allows learning to take place right away. We'll also look at the fascinating and really clever ways people have figured out to study learning in babies. What could come with us as babies? It turns out a lot. From birth, babies have particular motor reflexes, and these motor reflexes are so fundamental that their presence is actually used to indicate whether a baby is healthy or not. For example, one well-known reflex is called the stepping reflex. If you hold a newborn's feet against a hard surface, the newborn will actually kind of engage in a stepping-like action. Another newborn reflex is called the rooting reflex. If you stroke a newborn's cheek, he or she will turn toward that side and begin to make a sucking motion. And these reflexes actually help babies very quickly learn what are slightly more complicated motor behaviors. Such as nursing, and those behaviors are very important for a baby's survival. These reflexes also help to tune a baby's motor system by building connections between neurons in the brain and peripheral nervous system nerves in the limbs. Another place where we appear to come with some initial schemata involves physical objects. In fact, interestingly, it doesn't look like we learn all that much in our lifetimes about physical objects. Why would I say this? I'm saying this because six-month-old infants already expect a visually presented object to have three dimensions, to take up space, to fall when it's dropped, and other kinds of things that we know are true of physical objects in our world. Now you might be wondering how I can say that a six-month-old knows these things when a six-month-old can't talk. And certainly can't answer my questions about what he or she expected to happen when I let go of the ball. So how we know this is a fascinating story, and it actually capitalizes on a phenomenon called habituation. Habituation is defined as decreased responding after a repeated presentation of a stimulus. It's a very basic kind of learning because experience is changing how you respond to an event in the world. Early work on habituation looked at whether rats respond to a loud noise by startling, and this work showed that if you keep playing a loud noise over and over again, eventually rats stop reacting to the noise, and then we might say that the rats have habituated to the loud noise. Now, you may be thinking this sounds really minimal as learning goes, because after all, those of you in the audience have learned to read, to do math, to make complex decisions, and to carry out complex sequences of motor behavior, like when you drive a car. So, what on earth is so important about habituation? Without habituation, consider you could never distinguish between the old and the new, the irrelevant background and the important foreground, the expected and the unusual. Habituation is a kind of prerequisite for all of those more complex forms of learning, and 
Because it's a fundamental prerequisite, it's probably not surprising that habituation happens across all species and is evident even in very, very young babies, as young as newly born babies. And when we start to look at habituation more closely, we'll actually see that it's not quite as simple as you might think. That's because habituation involves a decrease in responding over time. And that means we have to consider at least two other explanations before we decide habituation is really about your experience with a stimulus, before we can be sure habituation is a kind of learning. What is additionally important is that in ruling out these alternative explanations, researchers discovered the phenomenon of dishabituation, and it's actually the combination of habituation and dishabituation that has given us a, a really fabulous window into the learning of very young babies. So what are these alternative explanations and what is dishabituation? Well, those alternative explanations are that habituation, that decreased responding, might be caused by sensory or motor fatigue, right? That is, it's not that learning about the stimulus is causing me to stop responding or the rat to stop startling. It's that the rat's ears are getting tired or that the rat's muscles are too tired for the rat to startle. Now, if fatigue of either sort is an explanation, the only thing that would allow the rat to start responding again is resting the ears or resting the muscles. And it's that startling again that we call dishabituation. So in fact, if you give the rat a break, if you rest the rat's ears and the muscles, and then you play the loud noise again, the startling comes back. The rat dishabituates. But, as I just explained, this kind of finding is actually a problem. Dishabituation after a rest is consistent with saying the problem here is fatigue, it's not learning. So what now? Well, now we try to figure out what else might cause dishabituation, but which wouldn't involve resting the animal. And it turns out that presentation of a new stimulus, say a light or a different sound, can actually cause dishabituation without any rest. That is, if I play a different tone to the rats, and then I go back to the original tone, I will see startling again. I'll see dishabituation. Now, since there was no rest, this is powerful evidence that habituation is learning, not just fatigue. Why does habituation matter? Well, one thing that turns out to be true is that babies habituate and they dishabituate. And what this tells us is babies come equipped with a brain that can say, old news, and whoa, that's new. This is a great bonus for researchers because it means that we can also look at what babies know and learn very early on by figuring out whether they habituate and dishabituate to a stimulus. More broadly, we can use habituation logic to test what babies expect and what they don't expect. This is because a habituated infant will look less at something in the environment. They'll look less at a display we're showing them. And dishabituation in infants is reflected in increased looking time. So with habituation and dishabituation, we can interpret infants' looking behavior, something that even very young infants can do, as telling us what they view as old hat versus what they view as new, unexpected, and interesting. So let's consider some of what we learned about babies' apparently inborn knowledge of physical objects, along with some evidence about what babies do have to learn. 
René Bayarjon is one of several infant researchers whose work has revolutionized our view of infants. Bayarjon and colleagues set up very simple demonstrations of movements with physical objects, and they show these demonstrations to young babies, sometimes as young as two and a half months of age. Bayarjon and colleagues showed that infants expect that objects have to be supported in space. They did this by showing infants images of a box on a platform and tracking what infants watched and how long they watched. So as the infants viewed the display, the box was pushed along the platform and there were one of two outcomes of this pushing. Now in one ending, what infants saw was the box pushed just to the edge of the platform and then it stopped moving. And infants were shown this version of events until they became habituated. They, they stopped looking, they looked quickly, they looked away, they were bored. In the second ending, the box was pushed all the way over the edge so that it no longer contacted the platform. It just hung in midair. Infants responded to this with dishabituation. They started paying attention again. And this suggested that the box being in midair without falling was not what they expected. Other similar studies show that infants expect that a hidden object stays still while it's covered up. So if the object is covered up and then the covering is removed and the object is still there, infants remain habituated. If the object is covered up and then when the covering up is removed, the object is gone, infants respond with dishabituation to the disappearance of the object. Infants also appear to expect that nothing can go through a solid object. If they're shown a different object that appears to be moving through a solid object, they actually look long and hard. And it's almost as though that baby brain is saying, that's just not how the world works. Now, I don't want to imply with these examples that infants don't learn anything. For example, infants do have to learn over time that having only part of a box on a platform won't guarantee that it'll stay supported. They start then to respond to images of the box being pushed almost off the edge of the platform, but not falling, as also being surprising. But what, what I'd like to show or like to point out is that that kind of learning can be built on the inborn assumptions that objects are three-dimensional, solid, and need support to be off the ground. Another arena where we have interesting inborn capacities, again, shared with other species, is in our grasp of numbers. Now, it is interesting to learn that the concept of numbers we start out with as infants is not quite the same as the one that we learn in childhood when we attend school. And it's not quite the same as the one that later on lets us do complex computations and matrix algebra. It's a foundation on which later understanding can be built. This foundational understanding of numbers lets infants discriminate between different numbers of objects. So babies and animals don't appear to discriminate different numbers of objects in what you might think of as a strict numerical sense. So for adults, the difference between one items and two items is the same as the difference between three and four items. In both cases, one pile of items has one more than the other. Now, from a ratio standpoint, the first difference between one and two reflects a doubling. That's quite a bit proportionally. So one quarter versus two quarters, I've doubled my money. The second difference from three quarters to four quarters is a lot smaller proportionally. It's an increase of a third. 
infants can discriminate between visual displays of a pile of eight dots versus a pile of 16 dots, for example. And as they get older, they're able to make finer discriminations. They can tell the difference between 12 dots and 16 dots. But they share with adults and animals some of the features of how they make those distinctions. For example, they're more easily able to make the distinctions when the ratios of the numbers are larger. And as an aside, this ratio-like uh, built-in programming seems to apply to a lot of perceptual distinctions for human beings. The critical point to understand here is that even newborn infants have some working assumptions and capacities that are based on evolutionary heritage, and they can bring these working assumptions to bear on the new world in which they find themselves. Now, we actually share these assumptions with many other species, but we go on to use our learning capacity to build gravity-defying 3D objects like skyscrapers to create algebra and other complex mathematical systems. In fact, much of what infants come equipped with appears to be shared with other species, and it's the common evolved heritage of land-dwelling mammals on planet Earth. But some of it, as we'll consider next, is perhaps a little bit specially developed in human beings, and that's the desire to share understandings with other human beings and to engage in cooperative actions, as well as our capacity to do so. In other words, what's uniquely human may be the desire to learn and engage socially. One example of this is that infants appear to have the capacity to imitate other people from virtually hours after birth. Um, one researcher interested in this area is Andrew Meltzoff, and um, I'm not quite sure how he was able to do this, but he was able to go into delivery rooms and hospitals and test newborn infants, really babies within hours of birth. Um, and what he would do is he would walk into the room, or the experimenter that was working with him would walk into the room, and they would look at this newborn, and they would get within visual range for a newborn, which means you have to get pretty close, and then they would do this. They would stick their tongue out, and then they would look at what the baby did. And somewhat surprisingly, even newborn babies would actually respond to this by also protruding their tongue. Now, researchers in this area, including Meltzoff, have argued that what this means, that even newborns can do some basic kind of imitating of others, what it means is that infants are born with the assumption that other people are like me. And Meltzoff and others have argued that imitating someone, it's a kind of early way of taking somebody else's perspective. It's also the case, for our purposes, that imitation is one of the major ways that human babies and children learn about the world. And there's actually evidence that young children all over the world imitate other people's actions. And that imitation of others is a really critical strategy for learning about the world and for learning how to do things within the world. Now, at this point, though, I want to consider some of the more recent evidence about young infants' abilities to take perspective and focus on shared understandings with others. And much of this work has been carried out by Michael Tomasello and his colleagues. In one study, Tomasello's group showed that 12-month-old infants will point to an invisible object that they want in order to get an adult to understand what it is they're wanting. That is, they appear to know that the adult can't see the object, and they're trying to direct the adult's attention to, to the object. It's a cooperative gesture. In another study, 12-month-olds who were shown an adult who was looking for something will actually point to an object that they know the adult doesn't know about. 
they don't point to an object the adult does know about. So already by 12 months, they want to help the adult find the object, and they make a good guess about what the adult's knowledge is. Now, what Thomasello's group concludes, based on this and other research they've conducted, is that even very young human infants are trying to influence the mental states of other people. And these attempts are actually pretty pro-social. Often infants try to help other people, even when there isn't going to be any benefit for them. Further, some studies actually try to look at whether young children communicate only to get what they want, as opposed to whether they care that they're being understood. And one early study in this area, Helen Shway and Ellen Markman had two-and-a-half-year-old children make requests about one of two possible objects. In a typical and kind of mean grown-up experimenter way, the experiment was such that there were two objects, and one was a very cool toy duck. The other object was something boring. Um, in one case, it was a sock. So kids would, of course, ask for the duck. And the experimenter could respond in a variety of ways. Now, in the experiment... They responded sometimes with, you wanted the duck. I'm going to give you the duck. This is a win-win situation. If you're the kid, you've been understood, and you got what you wanted. You got the right toy. However, in other cases, the experimenter said, you wanted the sock. I'm going to give you the sock. You might think of this as the lose-lose situation. You've not been understood, and moreover, you got the sock. In other key cases for the study, the, re- the researcher either acknowledged the request, but then gave the wrong object, you've been understood, and you have been denied, or the experimenter misunderstood the request, but gave the right object. You wanted the sock. I- I'm going to give you the duck. Now, this last condition is important because there is where we can see whether young children care about being understood or only about getting what they want. And the researchers found that young children care rather intensely about being understood, even when they're already getting what they want. Thomas Sello and colleagues recently retooled this study so that they could use it to look at somewhat younger children. And they were able to show that already by 18 months, children show evidence that they care as much about being understood as about getting their desired objects. And Children this young also showed that they could wait to get what they wanted as long as they were confident the experimenter had understood what they wanted. Now, the desire to be understood by others is not the same as the desire to cooperate. Understanding is sort of a foundation on which we can build cooperation. So what about cooperation? Well, in a series of studies, Tomasello and colleagues have shown that as soon as they're capable of it, infants will help adults by picking up dropped objects, and they'll do other actions aimed at helping. As it turns out, young chimpanzees also do things like this. But there are some differences. Young children also share food with other humans pretty readily, and when they share, they actually share the good stuff. Um, According to Tomasello and colleagues, chimpanzees are not quite like that. Um, In some studies... Chimpanzees or young children are asked to pull a board in order to get food for themselves. And in some cases, they'll get food for themselves and food for someone else, right? So in some cases, cooperating or getting the food helps somebody else also benefit. Well, chimpanzees don't try any harder whether another chimp will also get food or won't get food. They're uninterested in the other chimp's benefits. 
But human kids are different. Human kids actually pull harder when the other person also gets something. Human kids respond to collective benefit. And finally, humans communicate all the time. They share information. When chimps share information with other chimps, it's largely to get the chimp to do something desirable, like share their food. In fact, studies of language-trained apes suggest that most of what they do with their language abilities is to try to get the human beings that they are surrounded by to deliver the goods. That is, they're trying to get their human caretakers to deliver food, attention, walks, or other rewards. Now, finally, human capacity to cooperate with others, which is so richly evident in such young kids, is widely evident in both problem-solving activities and in games. And chimpanzees actually cooperate with human adults, um, and they do so fairly readily to solve a problem. They don't do so for games. So, for example, in studies where a ball-tossing game is initiated between a group of humans, only kids try to keep that game going when the adult stops the game. Chimpanzees, when the game stops, just stop. So what does all this mean for learning? Well, in addition to the reflexes and sophisticated knowledge about objects, infants come with an innate capacity and desire to cooperate with other people. This capacity and desire is there in infancy for normal infants. That capacity to cooperate and imitate lays the foundations for several important facets of learning. So first, it allows us to use imitation of others as a learning strategy. And in fact, it orients us to look towards others to learn. Second, it predisposes us to be able to collaborate in learning about our worlds and achieving our purposes. Thus far, we've focused on what infants come equipped with. We've focused on the categories and the kinds of schemata and the inborn motivations that allow infants to make sense of initial experiences in the world. Before we leave infancy, however, we need to consider a further set of issues, and that's the fact that infants may need to have certain types of experiences in order to retain and further develop those initial starting knowledge structures. This is the idea of critical or sensitive periods in development. The basic idea behind a critical or a sensitive period is that the presence or absence of some experience at a specific time in our lives has a dramatic influence on later development. Now, this broad definition covers a number of potential critical periods, including some that are less critically linked to our focus on learning. For our purposes, today we'll focus briefly on critical periods in perception. These are periods in infancy where the absence of the right types of experiences causes a failure in important developments in the brain, and the results involve lasting limitations on perception and, by extension, learning. Now, as I mentioned previously, some of the data on this look at animals because we have the capacity to control their early environments and early experiences. And you may recall that we talked earlier about the fact that Kittens who don't get exposed to horizontal lines early in their lives have difficulty perceiving those lines later on and can't learn anything that would require them to see horizontal lines. But similar effects can be seen in the way that humans process faces less well if, during infancy, they happen to have congenital cataracts. 
which impair vision during an early critical period for development. Infants who had congenital cataracts but had those removed later on go on to successfully function like normal adults with a few exceptions, and these exceptions can be actually teased out in a laboratory setting. So one deficit these adults have is in the ability to differentiate among faces based on small differences in the spacing of facial features. This is a kind of deficit in the ability to process faces holistically. Now, processing faces holistically means that when we look at someone's face in order to recognize them, we pay attention to fine details of their features, like specific shapes of lips or eyes, but we rely very heavily on how widely spaced their eyes are, how their eyes, nose, and mouth are related, how the face is distributed. That's holistic face processing, and it's critical to face recognition. So adults who had congenital cataracts during a critical period of infancy have difficulty with that kind of face processing. Now, this particular aspect of critical periods has a distinctly personal feel for me, and I'm going to close by talking about another perceptual ability that's linked to early visual experience, in part because it can also be clearly linked to learning. You may know that humans have a variety of ways that we can judge depth the distances between objects or the location of an object in the sky relative to ourselves. And this capability is relevant to all sorts of everyday and non-everyday tasks. Some of the strategies for judging depth involve using what are called linear depth cues. So one example of this is that if you're looking at a street, it diminishes in apparent width as it goes further away. A major source of depth perception in most two-eyed animals, however, is the discrepancy between the images that strike the two eyes. And you can see this discrepancy when you shut one eye and then the other. The objects around you will shift slightly in your visual field. Now, in infancy, one aspect of perceptual learning is how to judge depth based on this difference, which is called binocular disparity. And having one eye blocked visually during that sensitive period impairs the capacity to use binocular disparity to judge depth. As a child, I was cross-eyed, so my early visual experience was essentially like having only one eye, my right eye. As a toddler, I got corrective lenses, and I went on with life, blissfully unaware that there were any long-term consequences to this experience. Then, while taking a college sensation and perception course, we were all having a little field trip to a laboratory, and we were looking through a machine called a tachistoscope. And this is a machine that presents one image to each eye, a different image to each eye. For people with normal abilities to merge the two images, these two images actually get merged, and what they see is a single image. When we all took turns looking through the tachistoscope, it was clear that others saw something I didn't. My two images weren't merging, and I didn't see the full picture that I was supposed to see. What does this mean for learning for me? Well, to put it bluntly, it means that there are a couple of things that I have tried to learn and I've been unable to learn, despite investing serious effort and time. One was to serve well in tennis. I played tennis in high school. I was a competent, though not by any means a good player, in most ways. But I was never good at returning a lob a high shot, or at serving. And in fact, I was disastrously bad at serving. Now, why would this be? When you serve in tennis, you toss the ball up and you look up at it in the sky and hit it with a downward stroke. And to do so, you have to judge the location of the ball in the sky. 
The ball isn't on the court, which has many lines that help to establish how far the ball is away from a person. When the ball is in the sky, I'm unable to judge the ball's position relative to myself, and as a result, I can't learn to serve very well. Um, and despite hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of practice efforts, I still can't serve very well.、Um, for similar reasons, I also cannot learn to play volleyball.、Uh, a more recent example occurred when my husband and I learned to sail,、uh, and again, I was reasonably competent at many elements of sailing. But I have difficulty figuring out if I'm on a collision course with another boat once we're in open water, because away from the shoreline, binocular disparity becomes a more important cue to depth and trajectory. So those of you who sail will be happy to know I don't captain a boat, I don't command a tiller any longer. To summarize today's coverage, research on early infancy, which makes use of habituation and dishabituation as well as other approaches. Tells us that infants are far from a tabula rasa. They come with sophisticated, innate categories and physical scripts that help them make sense of their world. Next in the course, we'll begin to move into specific kinds of learning, but we'll begin with a bridging topic from babies to specific kinds of learning, and that's learning our mother tongue. One of the most profound achievements of learning and development in human infancy is the acquisition of a native language. This achievement, which really combines learning and development in interesting ways, is fundamental to our ability to cooperate and communicate with one another. And it's also an achievement of learning that raises issues about a critical period, because any one of us who's learned a second language well after early childhood knows how different and difficult that can seem. So next time we will examine the acquisition of a first language.